In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 The goal of prayer is not to get requests, but to get God. The goal of prayer is not something, but it's someone. The goal of prayer is communion with God. He in us, and we in him. That's the foundation that we've laid for becoming all fire. So you remember that Abba Joseph, as the story goes, was one of the Egyptian uh, monks, the, church, the, the desert fathers out there in the 4th century. And Abba Joseph once demonstrated what prayer can become to another monk by standing up and, pr- uh, and praying to God with his hands lifted and all 10 of his fingers became flames of fire. Remember this? I love this story. And then he just simply tells the other monk, If you will, you can become all fire. And brothers and sisters, for the fifth week, I'm telling you, if you will, you can be consumed with the presence of God through prayer. We are not much in the presence of God. We're lumps of coal. But we can burn. The Holy Spirit is fire. The Holy Spirit hungers to catch men and women on fire with the presence of God. He wants burning bushes all around his creation. Bushes that are not just bushes. I mean, it sounds so lame to say, you're going to be a burning bush. Really? No, bushes that become more than bushes because of the fire that is ablaze without consuming or burning or reducing them to ash. That's what communion with God can look like. Prayer is how we get the lump of coal to meet the fire of the Spirit. That's where the two have their communion. And so this is what we're after in prayer. Um, So that's what we looked at first, was why do we pray? Communion with God. Second, we looked at when do we pray? We pray during specific set times, whether it's right when you rise or before you go to bed or other times, you have specific set times to pray. And in between these appointments with God, we we sporadically and spontaneously lift up short prayers through the day. We keep the fire going with sporadic prayers. Then, third, we looked at what we pray. We pray first God's words, starting with the prayer Jesus taught us, the Lord's Prayer, going on to the Psalms he's given us, the Psalms, and then also when we read scripture, praying scripture into us. Then we pray our words. It's most appropriate to pray God's words before we rush into his presence with our words. Then we looked at last week how we pray. This was a very technical specific inside look at the soul in prayer to the best that I can communicate. Um, We looked at the posture, the posture of the internal person and the posture of the external person. So prayer has a certain posture between heart and mind. They must be cooperating the heart before God, but the mind under control of the heart. The mind doesn't think and ponder and plan and wander while you're in prayer. I mean, it does that, but we call it back. That's the internal posture. The external posture is that prayer is physical. Prayer can be literally breathtaking in how physical it can be. Primarily through prostrations, but also by the lifting of your hands and the various things we talked about. Um, I did not say, but I do think um, prayer as, as somewhat physical, physical and visible is important because prayer as warfare against the spirits in the world 
Well, I don't know how much demons can read your mind, but they can see you on your knees in prayer, and that drives them crazy, nonetheless. So tonight, part two of how do we pray. And this time, so we looked at posture, now we're looking at structure. Um, Structure. So you might ask, why do we need structure in prayer? And I give you two reasons. First, I find that structure is helpful because it liberates me to improvise. Structure liberates me to improvise. Um, So what happens is I start praying uh, something that's given, like the Lord's Prayer or a psalm. And this gets my heart and soul on the right track. It's like a train can't go anywhere until it's put on a track. Then I get put on a track. And now I get rolling. And now I can improvise. Like This line of the psalm led me to pray for this person, this situation, or to praise God spontaneously. I do that. But then instead of just keep on wandering out in the weeds and falling into who knows what pitfall of my mind and my thoughts, the structure brings me back to the track. So I find that structure liberates me to improvise in prayer because I know that no matter what I do, I have a, I have a place to come back to and keep moving forward. So when I'm, what I'm going to propose to you guys as a structure is not meant to limit your prayer life. Oh, I can't do this. Pastor Brandon said, first of all, that's a poor authority of one, but second, um, I can't do this. No, don't say that structure is limiting you. Structure is there to liberate you. It gives you returning points so that you can feel free to spontaneously talk to your father without feeling like, I don't know where I'm going with this. That's a terrible feeling in prayer. That's how I started. And then I found that structure helped me. A second reason for structure is that the structure of your prayer becomes the structure of your soul. And if you want prayer to shape your soul, then you want structure They say in the nutrition world that you are what you eat. I say in the spiritual life, you are what you pray. And here's a truth, and and get this into your heart, that if we just pray from our feelings, you will never be more than your feelings. We must pray beyond our feelings, which is why structure helps to shape my soul. If I just go with what I'm feeling, I will always be shaped by what I'm feeling. But if there's a structure or a track or a path to get me past my anger or past my disappointment or even past my everything's good, there's no problems. If I have something to get me past that, now my soul is being shaped by God. Yes, I know we have urgencies and we want to bring things to God, but here's what our problems need more than anything. Our problems need to be brought to the presence of God. They don't need expression they need the presence of god and when you're there expression is only a natural response to what we see in god this is why i find structure helpful so here's the structure i want to propose to you guys tonight it's very simple um i can go into tons of in fact i reduce these usually my sermons are about eight pages of notes um this one ended up at 16 So I worked really hard to condense and consolidate this. And I'm wasting time even now, and I don't have the time to waste. Um, I worked really hard to consolidate this, so we will get done before those candles are burned out, I'm sure. (laughs) I was was not given a head start on that. So um, 
Um, by the way, actually, here's a side note. I, I need to say this. Um, Ash Wednesday, I think it's March 3rd. It's the first week of March, the first Wednesday of March. Um, Ash Wednesday launches Lent, right? Ash Wednesday, we're going to have a get-together, uh, an Ask Anything night. Our first one was awesome. Thank you for those who attended that and contributed to that. We're going to do another one, and it's going to emphasize prayer, and it's going to be super open and practical about like very, very nuts and bolts things you wouldn't do in a sermon about how do we structure good, solid prayer lives. And then we can like get feedback on that. So that's Ash Wednesday. Mark that down. It'll be the end of our series. And I'm, I, so half of these notes will be thrust on you there. Okay. Sound good? <laughs> no? Okay. Everyone's scared now. Like, oh no, this is gonna be a heavy hitter. Okay. Here, so here's my structure I propose to you. And it's very simple. Thanksgiving, confession, intercession. Thanksgiving, confession, intercession. I will present them in that order. Thanksgiving, Psalm chapter 50, verse 12. Psalm 50, verse 12. So God, right before this, God's speaking here. And before this in this psalm, he's telling Israel, why do you keep giving me offerings as if that is, it's, it's, in other words, it's this. No heart in worship, but you're just bringing the animal and slaughtering it. And God's like, do I really need that? So here's what he says, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. It's not like you're feeding me. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Of course not. He's not that kind of a, he's he's God. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call on me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you. And the result, you shall glorify me. How is God glorified? Through more sacrifices? No. Now, it's not that God disdains the animals that Israel is bringing to him. That's what he asked for. But he asked that this was a ritual, that the heart was put into a ritual. That there was actually a worship of the person to God in it. But instead, the heart was elsewhere with an idol, and the body was doing this empty ritual. Just bring the animal that appeased God. God's like, are you kidding me? If if that's what I really wanted was just the animal? Like, I, I own cattle on a thousand hills, right? I own everything. It's all mine. So then what does God want? How do you glorify me? It's by bringing me the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Notice the connection between the word sacrifice and thanksgiving. This is one of the ways we bring a sacrifice to God in prayer, is we give him thanks. Now, notice the word thanksgiving. It's very appropriate. We don't just give thanks. Well, no, I mean, we do. Never mind. Uh, Said that all wrong. It's not just gratitude, like a gratitude journal. It's giving thanks. It's actually an off. As the smoke took the offering up to God, our thanks goes up to God. It's something we give to him. And so we give him thanks. Um, this is, so I define thanksgiving as actually our greatest act of worship to God. Because in thanksgiving, we give to him ourselves and everything that we have, we give it to him. Thanksgiving can only happen first. When I receive God's creation, everything he's put in my life, if I receive it, 
then I can come to him in Thanksgiving and return it to him. That's what Thanksgiving does. I acknowledge you gave this to me. Thank you. I'm putting it in your hands where it belongs, where I can most enjoy it. You cannot give thanks if you're grasping and clasping onto creation and overreaching and holding onto and clenching. That's not Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving can only happen when we receive and then we return it back to God. Everything we give to God is always returned to him. So without Thanksgiving, yeah, we're not in a good place. Uh, second, Thanksgiving is our greatest act of worship, but Thanksgiving, according to the Bible, is how we approach God. If you want, you can flip over 50 Psalms to 100, Psalm 100. Um, we, we used to say this every Sunday night before we give thanks, um, Psalm 100 says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now, there is a technical difference between praise and thanksgiving, but they're so often intertwined in prayer that I'm not making a distinction here. Understand? Giving him praise and thanks, I find, comes out synonymously. Even though technically, giving thanks is for things God has done or given, and praise is about who he is, if you need a technical distinction. Then Psalm 100 verse 3 continues, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So, enter, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And of course, the gates is talking about here are the gates of the temple. And so as we enter the presence, the sanctuary of God, we enter with thanksgiving, which is why I love and look forward every week to that open moment where you guys get to lift your thanks and praise to God. As we do, we are entering his gates. And then continues, give thanks to him, bless his name. And there's a good reason for it. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Thanksgiving is how we approach God. Very appropriate in your prayers. And then third and finally, Thanksgiving tips our souls toward gratitude rather than grumbling. I want you to imagine a scale. And as you give thanks, you are tipping the scale toward gratitude and a good day. And if you do that well... It's really hard to put a thankful person in a bad mood. I don't know if you've experienced that. But if we do not start the day giving thanks to God, your scale might be easily tipped. It could take one bad cup of coffee, someone not getting your oatmeal right, or the jacket you were hoping to stay warm in today ended up having a stain and someone didn't do the laundry yet. I mean, little things can get you in a bad mood before you're out the door. Thanksgiving tips the scale toward gratitude toward God. And that's another reason why it's important. So how do we give thanks? First, I like, you don't have to do this, but as you know, I'm a track guy. I like formed prayers that lead me into free prayers where I express my own words. I start with a formed prayer of thanksgiving. That means one I've read until I've memorized it, and then you can just say it. Um, I start with a formed prayer of thanksgiving. And the reason for this is that sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, i got to come up with all the things I'm thankful for. A a good formed prayer of thanksgiving gives you some of the major things you're thankful for. And you're hitting on them, and you're thanking God from right there. And then it's like, oh, yeah, all these things. My terrible soul is so stuck on myself, I often overlook some of the basic benefits God has given me. 
So I start with a form prayer. You can use um, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It is he who heals all your diseases, forgives all your sins, gives you strength like an eagle. Uh, Those are some of the lines of it, but gives you some ways to thank him. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Um, You can start with that. Then give thanks in your own words. And you'll find it comes. And by the way, Thanksgiving, a friend of mine said um, last week, we were talking, and, and she had said that Thanksgiving to her is like a muscle. The more you practice thanks, the more you find thanks for. And I'm finding that to be true. I'm finding that, well, no, this is, this is, when, this is Ash Wednesday stuff, so I will button that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, give thanks generally. Give thanks generally. Just for like, God, my salvation, God, my beautiful family. And then give thanks specifically. Like generally like, for all the people I know and love, the friends in my life, specifically thank you that when I see Bob, he lifts my soul up. Thank you that I look forward to this. Thank you that I love this part of my job. Or this, you go very specific. Do both. Do both. Uh, Know that when you do this, you are surrendering what you're thanking him for, and your very life. Know that. That's the caution. As you give thanks, you are surrendering it to God. But you will find your soul is much lighter for doing so. So that's Thanksgiving. Second is structure. Second part of the structure is confession. Confession. Psalm 51. So go over. We were in Psalm 50. Just go over one more. Psalm 51, we pray portions of this psalm every Sunday, but I'm going to show you a part that we, um, a part that we don't do. We're going to start in verse 16. Psalm 51, verse 16. For you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. So then what kind of sacrifice do we give him other than thanks? Is this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Contrite means humble. This is the posture of a heart that recognizes it's wrong and that God is right and it wants to live better. This is a sacrifice that God accepts better than an animal. This is a whole burnt offering. We're giving ourselves to him. Um, You will notice, um, well, what is confession? Confession is simply the admission of our sins before God. I mean, this isn't fancy. This isn't hard other than to do it. (laughs) You simply admit your, your sins to God. So that means we stop hiding our sins from God and ourselves. Oh, no, everything's good. We stop justifying our sins before God and ourselves. Oh, that happened because of this, or I was in the right, or it's a one-time special occasion. And it also means we stop blaming our sins on circumstances or on others. Well, it's their fault. Or if that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have done that. So technically, I'm not a bad person. (laughs) Uh, We've all been there. Admitting our sin means we're not hiding, we're not blaming, we're not justifying. In fact, you're in Psalm 51, and this is a part, um, 
Some a, a brother and I were d- discussing earlier this week. I had a lot of good prayers, uh, discussions about prayer this week for some reason. Um, he pointed out this part in the, what we pray every week. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Or in the translation we pray, against you, you alone have I sinned. What is evil in your sight, I have done. So you are just in your sentence and without reproach in your judgment. What is that saying? It's admitting sin without hiding it, but especially without blaming it. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I didn't just sin against you by gossiping. I sinned against God. And I can't just hide that one and say, well, I mean, that's me and Bob's problem. No. No, I sinned against God and really against him alone. And it's him that I must talk to about. So confession is simply admitting our sins. Second, confession unhides us from God. When I sin, I by nature hide from God. Ask Adam and Eve. What do they do after they sin? Immediately they hide. They, they make clothes to cover themselves and they go in the trees. There is an innate... Like, like, we're bent toward hiding from God when we are wrong. We don't like to confess our sins. But by confessing our sins, we unhide ourselves. We say, we come out of the trees, we take off the fig leaves and say, here I am. Here I am. Uh, this is beautifully uh, described by W. David O. Taylor. It's quite a name. Um, Albert and I and Scott and I were reading through this one. Um, This is what he says. He says, whatever they may be, with our secrets we hide. Whatever they are, you hide with your secrets. We hide from others, we hide from ourselves. And ultimately, we hide from God. In our hiding, we choose darkness over light We embrace death instead of life. We elect to be lonely rather than to be relationally at home with God and others. Your secrets bury you. Don't let there be secrets in your prayer. Be open and honest before God. That's the goal of confession. And then third, confession frees us and heals us from our sins. It doesn't free us from God as if he was so upset. You're squirming under his thumb until you cry mercy. It heals us and frees us from our sins. Our sins are death and they're wreaking havoc in our souls and in our lives. But by admitting them and calling them what they are, they flee from the light of God's presence. And we are healed and we are freed. This is beautifully shown in mark chapter three do you guys remember the story when jesus is in a synagogue and a man with a withered hand something he does not want others to see jesus spots him out and jesus calls him to the front of the synagogue and jesus says stretch out your hand now this man has been in the habit of hiding this withered hand for all his life And now someone is asking him to stretch it out so that all can mock him, so that he can show his flaw and his weakness and the parts that limit him as a human being. But he does. And it is not until the man stretches out his hand that it is restored as whole as the other. 
This is confession. It is stretching out our flaws in all of their ugliness before God and saying, I know it's bad, but you can heal me. And that's what it means to say, have mercy on me. It's not that the judge would be merciful. It's that the sin's devastation, God would intervene with mercy and heal us from that. Lord, see my flaws, have mercy and heal them. So how do we confess? Again, I like to pray a formed prayer. Psalm 51 is a good example. Doing part of it like we do at church or doing the whole psalm. Um, Psalm 139, verse 24, 23 and 24. The last part of Psalm 139. Oh, search me, God, and know my heart. Oh, test me and know my thoughts. See that my path is not wicked and lead me in the way everlasting. That prayer is inviting God to examine you. Have silence after that and let him bring things to the surface. Be open and unafraid before him. I would start with a form prayer that gets us in a penitential spirit, a humbled heart. And then somewhere in the middle of or by the end of that prayer, you are ready to just say, oh, these things came out of my mind. And you're confessing them. What happens if you have nothing to confess? <laughs> Stay in the presence of God a little bit longer, right? Um, so start with a form prayer, but then once there, confess honestly. Confess honestly. I mean, come on, let's not kid ourselves. What are you hiding from God exactly that he doesn't see? Like, as if I don't mention it, somehow I'm in a better spot. No, you're actually, that's a lie. You are in a worse spot because you're hiding something. Do not hide from God. You cannot become all fire if you are, well, do not put your lamp under a bushel, right? You cannot cover the flame or it will die. So confess honestly, but here's very important follow-up step. Confess compassionately. That means do not degrade yourself over hardly. That's not the right way to say that, but do not be too harsh with yourself. Because one of the things the devil wants to do when you sin is cause you to fall lower in despair. He wants you to sink in the slough of despond. When you confess your sins, confess compassionately, meaning don't go over into detail and woe is me. In fact, in one way, if you go into too much detail, you can almost be glorifying and dwelling and meditating upon the wrong you did, and that's not a good place to be. We are bringing this to God for him to heal us, not to meditate on the badness of what we've done. Confess compassionately because God hears you compassionately. Do not let yourself fall into darkness through confession. That's the devil's plan. God is bringing you into the light. So as a reminder, you have Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. I don't have high expectations for dust. (laughs) He knows that. He is not surprised at our failures. And if you are surprised, perhaps Your head is in an arrogant space. Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ. I read this literally last week, and I thought, well, that's fitting. Uh, Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says this. You are not God. You are a human being. You are flesh. You are not an angel. 
How can you always carry on in unwavering virtue when Lucifer could not while he was in heaven and nor could Adam while he was in paradise? I am the one who raises to safety those who mourn and I am the one who invites you to share in my divinity but I only advance those who recognize their own weakness. What is he reminding of us there? Is that in our confession, yes, God's there to bring us up, but don't, don't act like, I can't believe myself. What did you think you were? Lucifer fell from heaven, Adam fell from paradise. And we live in far less. And lastly, confess, when you confess, end by confessing God's faithfulness. We've admitted our faults. Let's admit his faithfulness. So like we do at church, you could use these. Um, uh, boy, it's hard when you're not in the flow, right? You're just saying, no, we're pulling. Um, for this is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm chief. There you go. There's the gospel in a verse. Or if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or other verses. There's, uh, there's tons of good ones. So claim a promise and remind yourself that he's faithful. Our relationship is unbroken because we have been open. So, Thanksgiving, confession, and third, intercession. You got to flip all the way to Psalm 141. Psalm 141. While you get to Psalm 141, that's chapter 141, by the way. While you get there, um, please note that when I'm going, what I'm about to talk about, intercession, I'm using very generally. Um, a lot of, um, you could call this requests, you can call this entreaties. So this is basically you're asking God for things, but I want to be specific and emphasize a little bit specifically on intercession for others. Because we can often focus too much on ourselves, and there's a place for that for sure. But I want to talk about interceding, that's praying for others. But here you go, Psalm 141, verse 1. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Here we have the psalmist bringing just general petitions. Hear me as I call upon you. Here there's a, there's a sense of desperation. There's need. This is where there's actual request and entreaty from God. And what does he relate this to? Again, like Thanksgiving and confession, he's using temple imagery to describe this type of prayer. This is like the prayer of incense. And the raising of my hands with it is like the evening sacrifice. Because of these mentions of the evening sacrifice, as early as the third century, even earlier, we have hints that the church was praying Psalm 141 as an evening psalm. But the point that I really want to point out is that here we have yet another connection to sacrifices as prayer. Now, the incense part's interesting because incense was the one thing, it was the last thing in the temple. As you go further into the temple where only priests could go, it was the last item before the veil in which the holiest of holies was God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant. And it was on the altar of incense that the priest, 
It was often connected that as the priest offered the incense, the incense symbolized the prayers of the priest on behalf of the people. You might remember in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is appointed his one-time chance, one chance in a lifetime to offer the incense on that altar before the very veil of the Ark of the Covenant. And as he does, there's an angel there, right? Remember, and he gets the whole word, you're going to give birth to John the Baptist. And he goes mute because he doesn't believe it at first. But we see that he, it says that as he was there to offer the incense, the people were outside praying, and then, of course, in this verse, we see the connection, prayers and incense. Revelation in two places, chapter 5 and chapter 8, connects the prayers of the saints with incense in heaven. How do they offer incense before the Holy of Holies in heaven? The prayers of God's people are that incense. We are fueling the worship in heaven through our intercessions for ourselves, each other, and the world. What is intercession? Intercession, first, carries others before God in prayer. That's what we do when we intercede. I'm carrying others before God in prayer. This was the role of a priest in the Bible. A priest carried others before God in prayer. A priest was the person who stood before the people and stood before God. He had privileged access before God, so he could do this in a special way. The high priest, in fact, wore on his breastplate the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. He carried the people of God before him in prayer. This is what intercession is. Carry others with you in prayer. Peter, by the way, 1 Peter chapter 2, connects this role of the priest with the role of the church. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And then he later, a few verses says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. What the priest did in the temple for Israel, the church does for the world today. That's what Peter's inviting us into. We stand between God and the world. We carry others before him in his presence. We have a new role, a privilege. We stand where no one else gets to stand. And if we don't carry others to God in our prayers, we are failing our priesthood. So we intercede. We pray for them. This is demonstrated in Mark chapter 2. In uh, Mark 2, you know, there's the paralytic and there are four friends who carry his bed, but they can't get into the house where Jesus is teaching because it's clogged up. So what they do is they go through the roof and they lower him. And then it says something so interesting. This is Mark 2 verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. It wasn't when he saw the paralytic's faith that he said your sins are forgiven. It's when he saw the faith of the four friends that he said to the paralytic, I will do this. This is a beautiful and powerful image of intercession. Intercession carries others before God. When we plead before God on behalf of others, we are the friends carrying the cot and lowering it before the presence of Jesus and when he sees the faith of his people persistently bringing others to prayer before him, that's when he moves in their lives. 
And that's why it's a shame if we fail our priesthood, because Christ is looking for our faith in intercession. Second, intercession stands between God and others. We already alluded to this. But here's what, inter- here's what it means to intercede literally. To intercede literally means to intervene. There's a problem, we jump in. Intercessory prayer means it's, it's breaking into this moment. God, we're bringing God into this situation. Not that he's not there, but now we're bringing, with our prayers, we're, bring, we're pouring down more of his power. It also means to go between Something's happening to intercede or to go between. But the go between part is interesting because that's us between God and the world. To intercede is to go between. And this is what we see in the Bible with the priests. You see in um, Psalm 106. I'll read this. You can flip over. It's not too far, but I'll read it to you. Psalm 106 verse 23. This is about Moses when Israel sinned with the golden calf. It said, therefore, Psalm 106, verse 23, therefore God said he would destroy Israel had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him. He interceded. He went in between. He intervened. He went in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And you saw that you see that also in Exodus played out in narrative form. Moses pleads, God, you can't do this. He was a priest on behalf of the people. Uh, Aaron, too, in a very powerful scene. Uh, this is number 16. Um, in number 16, you may remember Korah. This is one I remember teaching this. It kind of stirred some discussion because ambition's a tricky, it's a tricky trait to talk about in our country. Uh, but Korah was overly ambitious and he wanted the priesthood. You might remember Korah's like, who made you to be the leaders of Israel? And he's like, he and his sons are like defying the priesthood of Israel. And then God's like, well, let's, and Moses is like, let's settle this. Let's all bring our incense, our censers and see which one God honors. And Korah and his sons were dishonored and they were consumed with fire. That's not the all kind of, that's not the becoming all fire you want, by the way. That's the consuming, burning, destroying fire. Um, but then a plague breaks out because then people begin to grumble. These stupid priests, and Moses and Aaron fall on their faces, and you know they're always they're always falling on their faces before God. Um, but then the plague breaks out against the people, and Moses Moses says um, to Aaron, "Quick, get your censer, fill it with incense." So there's an incense altar in the tabernacle where you would offer the incense, but then there's censers where you can bring some of that incense out of the temple. So Aaron's bringing that altar, in a sense, out to the people. And what's he going to do? He's going to step in between the plague and the people. So here's what you read in number 17. I don't remember what verse this starts in, but it's toward the end of the chapter. He says, uh, Aaron went out and it says, Behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And Aaron put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. Every time I read that, I get goosebumps. That this is the role of a priesthood, of the church now, to stand between the dead and the living. Aaron stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. Third, intercession upholds the world. This might sound extreme. Maybe I'm going out on a limb, but I'm telling you what the early church thought of intercession. We get a glimpse. Um, They thought that intercession literally upheld the world. 
They believed that ships weren't sinking because of the Christians' prayers, that the, that the towns weren't burning and ravished with plague because of the Christians' prayers. You get a glimpse of this worldview uh, in a Christian apologist from the 100s, the second century. His name was Aristides, and I honestly know nothing else about him except this one little quote. He said that the world stands, the world stands by reason of the intercession of Christians. I suggest to you that we don't underestimate what our prayers are doing. You may not see miracles on the other end of your requests all the time, but what do you know about what's not happening because of what you're saying or praying? It is our civil duty. It's not just a spiritual duty. We have a civil duty to our community to pray for it. And yet, I believe that even if we Christians never did one, good, one more good deed for other people, the world still owes a debt to us because of our prayers. If you can't do anything else, at least pray. And I hate putting it that way because you should pray, beginning point. Then do more if you can. Intercession upholds the world. And then fourth and finally, intercession is warfare. Intercession opposes the work of the devil. Exodus 17, for example. Israel is just brought out of Egypt. They're weak. They're untrained in warfare. And Amalek comes and starts picking off the stragglers in the back, which turns into full-blown. Joshua turns around and says, we're going to fight you guys. This is spiritual warfare. In our journey through the desert, Amalek It's the demons trying to pick us off into sin in our weakest spots. So Moses says, go Joshua, let's battle. But Moses doesn't just sit by and let this be dealt with by the sword, because that's not our battle. Our battle is spiritual. So Moses goes up on the top of a mountain, and we read Exodus 17 verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. This is the picture I told you last week that the the image in artwork, in early artwork for the Christian was lifted hands. Moses is interceding for the people, and it says his hand, but then later Aaron and her are holding up both of his hands, so we know it's both of his hands. He's getting tired, and Amalek starts to win. Don't tire in your intercession, because we're not meant to do it alone. We intercede together. And so all the hands are lifted, and that's how the church goes forward against the darkness. That's how we oppose the work of the devil. Is he working in our community? Is he working in the world at large? Yes, If you don't think so, you're a materialist. That means you're brainwashed by our culture. (laughs) He's definitely working in our world. And our intercessions oppose his work. To show you how the early church thought about it, Tertullian, Tertullian, 2nd century, pretty far back, says his view on um, prayer was this. Prayer absolves sins, it repels temptation, it puts down persecutions, it strengthens the weak-hearted, it delights the high-minded, it leads wanderers home, it soothes the waters, confounds robbers, feeds the poor, governs the rich, lifts up the fallen, supports the unsteady, holds firm those who stand." 
Prayer is the buttress of faith, our armor and weaponry against the enemy that watches us from every side. So never let us set out unarmed. Powerful. Third century, a little later, a region of Alexandria said, one saint who prays is much more powerful than countless sinners who wage war. How do we intercede? I found this one to be somewhat burdensome, starting out in my youth with prayer. Interceding for others is like, yeah, that's important, but so many times I don't know what to pray for for them. Uh, so many times it's overwhelming, all the names. Okay, did I forget somebody? And then, oh, then there's this realm of people, and ah, it can feel crushing. Now, let me say two things. Um, if you have the gift of tongues, fantastic. Um, I don't, um, but my mom did. And I understand that that is one way you can pray when you don't know what to pray for. Use it. Cool. That's wonderful. That's a gift from God. Um, but if you don't, or, or in addition to, uh, here's one way that us lesser ones can intercede for others. Ask God to remember people. Start with remember I say this because first Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, I remember you always in my prayers. But I love the phrase, remember. Paul felt no obligation or burden to be super specific and to pray super in-depth about every little problem and need in person. Sometimes Paul simply remembered people in prayer. So just, Father, remember Bob. And I believe the more people we can say that about, the better off we are than to simply go on for 15 minutes about one person. Now, sometimes you will be led to pray more in depth about someone. Go with the Spirit. But start with a simple structure and say, Lord, remember. And say the names. Remember, remember, remember. We're bringing them to his presence and to his power. Then use a list. This is what changed it for me. It was a burden to remember, but now I have a list. And every time you guys put a prayer card, by the way, in the prayer box, you go on my list. And if you don't, sorry, <laughs> there's enough people to pray for. Like, if you're not admitting you need prayer, I'm not going to waste my precious time for it. <laughs> Although sometimes I do if you come to my mind. Don't worry. Um, that, was, that was not a good confession to make. Use a list. If you work with people, put their names on it. If you have people in a church family, put their names on it. Of course, there's some people you don't need to put on a list. They're on your hearts, family and close friends. But then there are others that we don't carry on our hearts, so we carry in a list that we keep in our pocket or in our Bible or in our prayer place. I have that list so you can say, remember this person, remember this person, remember this person, remember this person. The list freed me from a burden. I didn't have to think or remember I got to just say, these are the people. And then if more came, I added them. But I wasn't left with this like, oh, I got to lift the weight. It's here. And God, remember these people. But then go further. Um, remember Bob. So third, you, uh, you use a list, but then make the request. Remember Bob, who is looking for housing. Remember Bob to give him wisdom. You don't have to say more than that. Did you know that God already knows? But when 100 people say, remember Sharon and the cancer she's going through, well, 
I think there's a little more concentration of grace in that area. We are interceding. We're standing on behalf of, we remember, we use a list, we request. Uh, Fourth thing to know about interceding is be ready. (laughs) Be ready. Because every name you mention and request you attach to it means that you might become a candidate for answering that prayer. So be ready. And then remember yourself. I have a habit of starting with praying for others because I don't want to put myself first in a sense. Remember I said the shape of your prayer is the shape of your soul? I hope that by praying for others first, it shapes my soul to think of others first. And it's still going to take 60 years to work that out, but still, it's, it's a start. Uh, I suggest you pray for others first, but then remember yourself. You have needs too. It's okay to intercede for yourself or to pray for yourself. Your concerns, your walk with Christ, your impact on others around you. There you have it. A structure you can use. Uh, one question in debate. Uh, we, I, I'd be happy to dive into this more and at another time, like on Ash Wednesday. But um, is this the order you must use? We talked about it being a structure. But are you free to flip-flop the order? Uh, there's no, they say there's no wrong or right way to pray. So no, of course, start with intercession if you want. Um, I prefer it, the order I gave it to you. And I have reasons that would take another sermon to go into, but I prefer it. But there are a lot of traditions and people who love to start with confession. Uh, for example, the book of common prayer puts confession first and puts Thanksgiving last. Okay. Not my thing, but, um, and I have theological reasons for that, but that's the way they do it. And who am I to argue with the theologians that made that too? So therefore, my point is, you don't have to do it in this order, but what your prayers must include are thanksgiving, confession, and intercession. And if they don't, then we're not living up to the full picture of sacrifice in the Bible. Because these are the three kinds of prayers that the Psalms call an offering to God. So you, brothers and sisters, get to come as priests before God, offering up pleasing aromas as we thank him, confess our sins, and intercede on behalf of the world. Be encouraged. Keep going. That's a basic structure that you can use. You can always add on to it things like reading scripture. We talked about reading the Psalms and praying the Lord's Prayer. Where does that fit in? You know, like you, that's, you, know that you can work that out. Um, but these are three things we must have. So if you will, you can become all fire. Pray with thanksgiving, pray with confession, pray with intercession. May God be manifest in us. Lord, direct my will. Teach me to pray. Pray you yourself in me. Amen.